Acts 8. And remember, the, the first section of the book of Acts was about how the witness lays its foundation. The, the church is called to be witnesses. Jesus calls his disciples to be a witness. And we see that the, the witness first lays its foundation in the first seven chapters in the book of Acts. Here are foundational things about the witness that the church is going to engage in. Now, this morning, we're moving to a new section where we're talking about how the witness reveals its true nature. And we're going to see that the church begins to understand more and more about this task of witnessing that God has called the church to. We're going to see that the church is surprised at at who they're called to witness to. The the church is going to be surprised at at how this witness takes place. And and one of the aspects of, of surprise takes place this morning as the church finds out that the gospel is spread through persecution. This witness is going to take place through persecution. That's a surprise for the church, and it may be a surprise for some of us as well. So if you're able to, if you want to stand with me as we read Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, as we encounter this, this new section of the book of Acts, the first seven chapters have all taken place in Jerusalem, and now the church is going to, to spread out. We're going to begin here in verse 1. Stephen has just been martyred, just been executed. And verse 1 tells us, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. The crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. You may be seated. And Father, we do ask for your joy in in this midst today, in this church, provide that joy for us. We pray for our, our community. We pray for our country. We pray that you would give us the ability to lead peaceful and quiet lives, not because we love this world, but because we love you and we desire for others to know you as well and for us to be able to, to live in joyful obedience to you as we proclaim the name of your son, Jesus. So we, we pray toward that end. And we, we praise you for the things that have happened even this past week. We praise you for the hard things. We, we praise you for the, the tragic things. And we also, we praise you for the resilience of, of the government in which we live, that we can, can see hard things uh, happen, and yet uh, our, our nation endures. So we, we pray for your continued grace in that. Help us to understand this text this morning. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. A few months ago, we began looking at the story of, of Stephen and, and talked about his, his persecution and the reality of persecution. And so we, we talked about how our task as a church is to prepare potentially for persecution. We talked about how we want to be ready to proclaim the gospel and, and be faithful witnesses no matter what the cost is, even if the cost of proclaiming the gospel 
is our very lives. We, we want to be prepared for that. And so we, we talked through that as we began the story of Stephen. Now, we're continuing to talk about persecution this morning. And the first surprising thing the church learns about the gospel, as the witness reveals its true nature, the first surprising thing we see in these verses is that sometimes that gospel witness takes place through persecution. The martyrdom of Stephen doesn't end the persecution of the church. It proves to be just the beginning. For those of us who are Christians and have access to God's Word revealed in the New Testament, persecution doesn't come as a surprise. We, we know that persecution is going to take place. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4.12, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. We don't encounter a world not liking the gospel and directing their, their hatred of the gospel towards us. We don't encounter that and go, well, boy, that's a, that's a surprise. Didn't see that coming. No, we, we understand that this is a reality. I mean, just think about the weeks, the events of the past week. We, we think about the world we live in and we, we recognize, boy, this, this is a fallen world. I was talking to a Christian friend, communicating with a, a Christian friend, and, and this is a, a great guy and enjoy getting his perspective on things. And he was a, a Christian who was really distressed by the protests and some of the riots over the summer. He had found that very, very disturbing. But he told me this past week, he said that's, in his mind, that's what that side does. They're the side that riots. And so he told me, he told me that he was just shocked this week at the events at the Capitol on Wednesday. He said, I, I thought it was just the other side that did stuff like that. Now, here's what we realize. There's not some other side out there when it comes to the world. When it comes to earthly powers, we see that, that all ultimately are either going to bow the knee and submit to God and the kingship of Jesus Christ, or all powers are going to resist God's reign. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who spent years in a Soviet labor camp because he had criticized Stalin in a personal letter, he famously wrote this. He said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, not between political parties either. The line separating good and evil passes through every human heart. And while I would obviously disagree with some of Solzhenitsyn's theology, he's right to recognize the, the depravity that exists within every human heart. And so as we encounter a world that doesn't want to live in submission to God, it, it doesn't surprise us that that world turns its, its ire, its, its hatred against the children of the one true king. So we don't, we're not surprised at persecution for that reason. But we're also not surprised at persecution because we know that, that God appoints persecution for his people to go through. John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, which is a tremendous book, of course, and I highly recommend it to you, and I especially recommend to you the chapter on suffering. And, and in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, in the chapter on suffering, John Piper talks about the, the nature of, of persecution and how God uses that. 
Here, here, in fact, is the main idea that I want us to think about this morning as we look at these verses. Persecution is part of God's plan to bring people from every tribe and tongue and nation into the worship and into the joy of worship of him. Persecution is what God is going to use to fulfill his plan to bring people from every tribe and tongue and nation into the joy of worship of him. And again, as, as Piper writes in this, this chapter on suffering, he tells the story of a man named Frank Marshall, not his, his real name. But Frank was ministering as a missionary in a Latin American country, and he was thrown into prison unjustly. And his first week in that prison, he had the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to a Muslim prisoner, and that, that Muslim placed his faith in Jesus Christ, professed faith in Christ. And then within the next week, he had the opportunity to, to share the gospel to a group of, of 50 prisoners at one time. And as he proclaimed the gospel to the, 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 the 50 prisoners at one time, what did, what did he tell them? He said, look, here's, here's the gospel. Here's what it means to, to be a Christian. A person is a Christian who recognizes that they're a sinner, that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life, died on the cross for their sins, to pay the penalty for their sins, and rose from the dead. And you can, can come into relationship with God, not through doing good things, but through placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Turn from sin and trust in Jesus and become a Christian. He, he preaches that message, and what happened? 30 of the, the 50 men who were there in that prison listening to Frank share that message turned in their lives and placed their faith publicly in Jesus Christ as Savior. As we look at this passage, we see that persecution is, is not outside of God's plan for us, but it's actually part of God's plan to bring people from every tribe and tongue and nation into the joy of worship of Him. So let's look at two things. We're going to look at the sorrows of persecution, then we're going to look at the joys of persecution. Let's begin by talking about the, the sorrows of persecution, and we see this in the first three verses. And if you have your Bibles, look at the first three verses of Acts chapter 8 with me. There's a couple things I want you to notice. First of all, notice who is being persecuted. It is the church. Verse 1, it says, Paul approves of Stephen's execution, and it says, there arose that day a great persecution, that's the first time that word has been used in the book of Acts, a great persecution against the church. So who's being persecuted? It's the church, and that word has been used a couple of times in the book of Acts. It's continued to be used, we're going to talk about it more as we go through this study. But that word is, is the Greek word ecclesia. It's, we get the English word ecclesiology, or the, the study or theology of the church from that word ecclesia. It means gathering or assembly. It, it describes a, peop, a group of people who are gathering together for a specific purpose. And, and what we see is that the, the early church has been identified as, as a unified body. There's a, a group that they look at and the, the people say, okay, that, that's this, it's this organization, it's this group, it's this ecclesia, this gathering. And they are identified by their profession of faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and they are identified as being part of that ecclesia, that gathering, because they've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as they profess Jesus as Christ. There is an 
in and an outside to the church. There's unity as they exist inside this body. So they're the ones who are being persecuted. And who is doing the persecuting? Well, the text tells us that it's Saul and the, the Jews that are behind this assault on the early church. It says that Saul approves of, of Peter's execution, of, of uh, Stephen's execution. And then in verse 3, Saul was ravaging. They, 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 Luke draws our attention to Saul in particular. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul, or Paul, would tell us later in Galatians chapter 1, he says, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently. And what was his purpose? He says, I, I was trying to destroy it. His goal was to destroy the church. And so we see the persecution. It is severe. Stephen has paid for his faithfulness with his life. As we've gone through the book of Acts, notice it started off with warnings in chapter 4. Then there was a flogging in chapter 5. Stephen was killed in chapter 7. And now it's, it's churchwide persecution. Paul, later after he was converted, would talk about this period of his life and he would say, I, I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering in prison both men and women. He would say before Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In other words, I, I was supporting these people paying for their profession with their lives. And not only that, he says, I... I and, I tried to make them blaspheme, Paul says. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even in foreign cities. A couple things I want us to think about as we think about the sorrows of persecution we see the church going through here in these first few verses. First thing is this. You and I need to be faithful to, to pray for those who are persecuted. We need to be faithful in prayer. Hebrews 13, 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. Believers prayed for boldness in Acts chapter 4. They recognized that they were the, the targets of opposition, so they, they, they pray, God, give us boldness. Paul in Ephesians would say, pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So as we think about sorrows of persecution, we need to, to pray for those who are persecuted. That needs to be a regular part of our, our prayer lives, lifting up our brothers and sisters. We're all part of the same church, the body of Christ. We need to be faithful in praying for those who are encountering persecution for their faith. We also need to, as we've talked about before, expect persecution. This isn't a strange thing to take place. A third application I'd have for us here is we need to discern what true persecution is. Oftentimes, I think we as believers encounter difficulty in life, and we find out people don't like us, and there's this sense of, you know what, I'm a Christian, bad things are happening to me, uh, I'm, be, I'm being persecuted. When in reality, um, maybe people just don't like you because you're argumentative, or, or maybe, um, maybe that, that person is just not a very nice person. In fact, um, I was cleaning out the basement this past week. It's been a, a project we've been working on. 
really since we moved into the house, probably, cleaning out the basement. But um, I, found, I found my sixth grade journal. Uh, and I'm going to read to you what sixth grade Daniel, like how I distanced myself from this. Let me read you what sixth grade Daniel wrote in this journal. And every week or every day, the teacher would give a prompt, you know, write about this. And so we'd, we'd write about this. And so apparently this day, the, the prompt was, describe a bully. So here's what sixth grade Daniel said. If I describe a bully, I would say he would be persuasive without necessarily, or without using physical force unless people don't do the things he tells them to. So I read that. Well, that's, that's subtle. It's kind of nuanced. I don't know, those of you who are in sixth grade, does that sound like a, a, good, a good definition of a bully? You know, kind of tries to get people to do things that they want them to do, not necessarily using physical force. But then I, I go on, I, I get a little less subtle. I would also say he has red hair, <laughs> freckles, a red shirt on today. I would say he joined safety patrol last semester so he could slam people against the wall and boss them around. That's how I would describe a bully. And the teacher wrote, who could this be? <laughs> So apparently, I, don't, I have no idea who this person is, but I need to look through my old yearbook to find red hair and freckles. You know? But um, it could have been me. I don't know. But the, I don't think I was being persecuted in sixth grade as a Christian. What was probably happening is two sixth grade boys were just kind of being jerks to one another, right? So, so what, kind of, what are we talking about? It's, it's important to discern true persecution because I think Christians are, are going to encounter persecution. If we encounter difficulty in life and we're saying, well, I'm a Christian, I'm encountering difficulty in life, I must be per being persecuted, that's not necessarily true. We, we may not be living the way that we're supposed to be living. When I say I'm being persecuted for my faith, what I, what I should mean is, okay, because I'm proclaiming my faith in Jesus Christ and living, the, the fruit of the Spirit is being exhibited in my life, that's the reason for the difficulty that I'm facing. So in other words, a person knows that I'm professing Christ, and so they're making my life difficult because of that profession. They want to destroy the, that faithfulness of the profession. That's persecution. Or if they see the fruit of the Spirit exhibited in my life, and, they, and they're taking advantage of me because they know that I'm going to be a gentle, kind, loving person, that's where I'm being persecuted because of who I am in Christ. A, a family member hears about your what you believe because you're trying to live in obedience to God, and, and, and they, they ostracize you. They, they say, I don't want anything to do with you because of the things you believe about God and his call in your life. That's what we're talking about here. Or the workplace, you are told you have to do certain things that, that violate who you are in Christ, and you say, look, I, I can't do this because of, of who I profess as, as my Lord and Savior, and they say, well, you either do this or you lose your job. That's, that's persecution. That's opposition to a person living in kingdom obedience to God. Final application I'd, I'd have for us here as we think about the sorrows of persecution is we need to mourn persecution. We need, we need to, to feel sorrow over this. It, it's really easy for us sometimes whenever a person tells us about sorrow in their life or hard things that are happening, we, we say, you know what? Um, God has a purpose in that and here's what the purpose is and so you need to not be sad. That, that's not necessarily helpful, right? It says here in verse 2 that there is great grief that the church feels over Stephen. 
And we're going to talk, we're going to get in a second, the joys of sorrow and persecution, the, the joy of persecution, how God used his persecution to share the gospel. And is that exciting? Yes. And is that amazing? Yes. And is God great for doing that? Yes. But let's not miss the real sorrow that exists. Stephen has just paid for his profession of faith in Jesus Christ with his very life. And his friends mourn that. The psalmist says that God has kept count of our tossings. The psalmist says, you put my tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? We want to acknowledge the reality of the sorrow of persecution. But now, let's talk about the joys, because there are joys of persecution. Let's talk about the joys of persecution in verses 4 through 8. I want to suggest to you that verses 4 through 8 are some of the most beautiful and comforting words in Scripture. We don't want to minimize the reality of, of the sorrow of suffering for the name of Christ, but, but as we look at these verses, we encounter some, some beautiful things. In fact, there's, there's four things, four incredible things from these verses I want you to notice. First of all, I, I want you to notice how a sovereign God orchestrates the movement of his people through persecution. So, so keep your finger there in Acts chapter 8. Turn back to Acts chapter 1. And Remember what we saw in Acts chapter 1 as Jesus gives instructions to his disciples about what they're to do. In Acts chapter 1, they're asking, okay, what's the plan, Jesus? And in verse 8, he says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. That's, that's their role, to, to be witnesses to who Jesus Christ is, to proclaim the gospel. And he says, you're going to be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth, to the end of the earth. Now, what's happened since Jesus has said those words? They've been witnesses. So they're supposed to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, the remotest parts of the earth, the ends of the earth. Now, what's happened so far? Where have they been? The first seven chapters. They've been where? Jerusalem. There's no indication that they've been in Judea and Samaria, or that there's a plan to reach Judea and Samaria, much less the ends of the earth. So what happens? Persecution. As you turn back to Acts 8, they're supposed to go to Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria. What happens? Verse 1, great persecution, and they're scattered. Where? Judea and Samaria, exactly where God has said they're to go. Persecution is what a sovereign God uses to, to move his people at times. Paul would say this in, in 2 Corinthians 1, he would say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, if we are afflicted, if we encounter affliction, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. The implication is you are not where you are by accident. God has caused affliction to come upon you 
so that he can place you in exactly the place he desires you to be. The suffering that God has appointed you to go through has placed you in a unique place around others who need to hear the gospel. We as a church of several hundred people cannot go everywhere. In fact, contemporary evangelicalism gets us so messed up, right? We think, okay, bring everybody to church, get them saved, and then the world needs to act like the church. In reality, we understand the world is lost. We come to church to equip the saints, to engage in worship together, and then we, then we go out the places that God puts us, and we proclaim the gospel. And some of the places that God puts you, he, he does so through suffering, through persecution. We can't take several hundred people into the hospital waiting room. But you may be there. We can't take several hundred people to the funeral home. But God may take you there. We can't take the whole church as as a church to prison, but God may take you there. God orchestrates the movement of his people through persecution. Where you are, you're there because God has placed you there. That brings us to the second thing that I think it's important to notice in these verses. God's people fulfill their calling to proclaim Christ often through persecution. God's people fulfill their calling to proclaim Christ often through persecution. So, Number one, God orchestrates the movement of his people through persecution. Two, God's people fulfill God's calling to proclaim Christ through that persecution. So the the first thing we notice in these verses is God's sovereign hand at work. The second thing we see is our, our human responsibility, the thing that we're doing as God puts us in the places he does. Look at verse five. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. He proclaimed to them the Christ. I, I love that phrase. He, he's proclaimed to them the Christ. So Philip, remember Philip from chapter six, he's one of the Hellenistic uh, Jews. He is a, a Greek speaker, most likely. He's one of the deacons that they appointed. And he goes from Jerusalem, Judea, sorry, from Jerusalem, through the persecution, he goes in the broader region into Samaria. And remember, the Samaritans and the Jews don't have high regards for one another. But what does Philip do when he gets there? He does what he does. He proclaims the Christ. You put him in Jerusalem, where's, what's Philip doing? He's proclaiming the Christ. You put him in Samaria, what's Philip doing? He's proclaiming the Christ. People who are excited about something talk about it, right? You know, you have that friend who's really excited about something, and you, you see him at a party, and he's really animated, and, and you look at your, your other friend, and you say, okay, someone, someone must have just, just asked him about the Packers. Uh, someone must have just asked him about gardening. You know, someone must have just asked him about politics. Uh, someone must, must have just asked him about Bethany Community Church. I mean, he's just really excited, right? Just talking about these things. We who are believers are excited about Christ. No matter where you place us, what party you place us, what situation you place us in, we're going to proclaim Christ. It's what we do. God's people fulfill their calling to proclaim Christ often through persecution. Now, let's remember we all love each other, right? We all, yeah, thanks, Kent. Most importantly, we all love me uh, right now. No, not, not, that's not most important, but I'm, I'm going to say some things here. Um, 
I, I told you earlier in the year during the summer, I said, you know, I want to be careful about saying some things too quickly. I didn't want to respond to some, some of the political and social events that were going on too quickly. I felt, you know, it's important to kind of let some time pass. And there's, there's some principles I knew we were going to get through as we went through Acts that would be helpful for us to consider. And there's more coming, right? But I think this text is important for our hearts to consider. Here's, here's what I want you to hear from this truth that God's people proclaim the gospel often through their persecution. Here, here's what I think we need to hear, Christians. God's kingdom is going to be built through the blood of your witness more often than through your political might. God's kingdom is going to be built through your, the, the blood of your witness, not your political power. Let me be more specific. You know, during the summer, I thought about this passage as principles in relationship to some of the, the, the protests and some of the, the riots that, that came from those protests. And I thought, boy, you know, if, um, if I were speaking to, to certain Christians right now and I hear some of the things they were saying, I, I would really caution them about the language that they're using. The idea that past or present sins justify responses of, of the flesh is, is deeply, deeply concerning. And if I was talking to some people who are involved in some of the, the Black Lives Matter movement, and, and I'm not saying all people that believe this, but some of, the, some of the words that I was hearing were greatly concerning to me that were coming out of Christians' mouths. I, was saying, I would have said to them, look, being persecuted is the way of Christ. And so be very careful. Engaging in persecution is not the way of Christ. Fleshly responses to persecution is not the way of Christ. Being persecuted is the way of Christ. That's some things I would have said over the summer. Now, as we come to this passage today, there are some different things I would say to this audience. You know, I, honestly, I never had, in our church, I never had anyone come to me over the summer and say, Daniel, look, I am really, this Black Lives Matter movement, I'm all in. Okay, I'm, that, that's not where we are on average politically here. But I, I would say this to us, to the people that I hear from a lot. I would say, look, be careful. Don't provide cover or excuses for people in positions of power who are exercising that power in fleshly ways. D don't be the person who provides cover or excuses for people who are exercising power in, in, in fleshly or or ungodly ways. There is a belief right now, I think, I think you would agree with this, there's a, as, as, as political parties think about the future, one political party I think believes right now that in order to, as they think about the future, and as politicians kind of vie for that future mantle, there's a belief among politicians of a party that to get the evangelical support, they need to be angry and divisive. And, and to be, the more angry and divisive I am, the more likely I am to get evangelical Christians excited about supporting me. That's, that's the belief I think they have. Now, I know we live in a binary political system. You have to make hard decisions, decide what you will and won't overlook. But, but my encouragement to us as a church would be this. Realize as we look at God's plan for his church that we must not be the people who engage in or support the works and deeds of the flesh. 
Galatians 5 tells us sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, all those things are, are, are deeds of the flesh. And so if a, a movement or a party or something is, is engaging those things or celebrating those things, that's, that's not what we provide cover for. But what else does it say are deeds of the flesh? Str- uh, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, divisions, dissensions, envy. All those things are also deeds of the flesh, and and we as Christians cannot be those who provide cover or encourage such things. That would be my encouragement to us as we think about this time in our country's life right now. Paul says, I warn you as I warned you before, those who do things like that, enmity, strife, divisions, dissensions, those are the people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. You say, well, Daniel, what does that mean? Again, you know, I think I've heard some good things Christians saying recently. I've heard people say, look, I'm, I, support, I support the policies of a person, not the person themselves. And I, if, I think that's very wise. You want to hear some things I've said in the past? Talk to Dave Robbins. He loves telling about people I've thought were awesome in the past and how that came back to bite me. He finds it very funny, and he's right. You know. But I've heard people say this as well, and here's, here's, here's my caution I've heard people say, look, I don't care about the personality of a person. And as they describe the personality, they're, they're describing fleshly deeds. Or they've said, look, I, I, I celebrate the, the fleshly things that a person does. I, I celebrate the, the divisive words. I, I celebrate the fits of anger. I, I like that. I want someone to do that for me. And let me caution you, believers. Let me just caution you. Let me caution you that that's not us. It is far more likely that we are going to proclaim the gospel through persecution than through engaging in works of the flesh. No politician is perfect. No person is perfect. I'm not saying only vote for perfect people. I'm, saying, I'm pleading, don't celebrate fleshly deeds. That's not us. That's not the church. Paul tells Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. In other words, quarrels is not something we're a part of as believers. We're strong, we stand firm in the faith, but we're also gentle, we're meek. Meekness is not weakness. The Lord's servant, Paul goes on, must be not quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's our goal. That's our mission. We desire to see men and women come to a knowledge of the truth and place their faith in Jesus Christ. We want them to, to, to recognize, okay, this is not the way to live. The world is, is not, not a, a great place. I, I want to live in submission to God. Now, I may disagree with with people on the left. I may disagree with people on the far right, but these people are still image bearers who I desperately desire to come into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians don't scream racist at each other and slander one another. Christians don't call people scum. We don't justify thuggery by talking about how bad the other side is. We don't lob hateful words at Republicans or the media or Democrats or or the Rotary Club. That's not us. We preach Christ through persecution in positions of weakness in the spirit, not through positions of power in the flesh. The time of persecution is upon us, right? It's always 
going to be true, that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's going to take different forms. It's going to be the government at some times. It's going to be your family at some times. It's going to be the workplace at others. And I, I think some of you are going to lose your jobs in the next few years as you remain faithful to Christ. It's coming. We're not scared of that. There's joy in that. We're going to be faithful. We're going to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through persecution. Last couple things here real quickly. Number three, we see, we see also that the hurting receive divine aid. That the hurting receive divine aid through the Spirit as, as the gospel is proclaimed. Verses six and seven describe this. The, the crowds pay attention to what Philip is saying. We've, we've talked this, about this before, the work of the Spirit. They, they hear him. They see the signs that he did. Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. So there's a spiritual healing and there there's also physical healing. Many who are paralyzed or lame were healed. Those who are fully committed to living lives of, of sanctification experience the joy of God's deliverance. We who are proclaiming Christ want people to see that the joy of, of rejecting sexual morality, the joy of rejecting materialism or contentiousness, we, they see the life and the hope that's offered through Christ, and there's divine aid. And then finally, look at verse 8. Those who receive God's grace experience joy. As a result of the persecution that Philip encounters, he's scattered. And he goes to the exact right place that God wants him to be. And he proclaims the gospel. And, and as a result of him being in that place, verse 8, there was much joy in the city. The, jo- the revival of joy for those afflicted souls would not have taken place apart from God's sovereign orchestration of the circumstances. Persecution is part of God's plan to bring people from every tribe and tongue and nation into the joy of worship of him. And my, my call, my encouragement to each of us to be, okay, God, I'm not going to resist the way that you bring about different circumstances into my life. I'm going to be obedient to where you've placed me. And as I engage in the ministry you've called me to do, I'm not going to do it through flesh, fleshly deeds. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to condone evil, but at the same time, I'm going to be exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit and enduring persecution with hope because I recognize, God, that that's part of your plan to bring joy to all people as they worship you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the persecution that you may have in store for for us, from family members, from co-workers, from uh, other, uh, other sources of, of power, we, we pray that we would endure it. We pray that we'd endure it not for our own glory, ultimately, but for the glory of, of your name. We pray that you would have, that, that hard times would have their right effect in us, that we would be able to proclaim our hope in your son Jesus in all circumstances, in a, a way that exhibits the fruit of the Spirit. Father, we recognize we are in a contentious environment right now where, where people are, are angry and hurting and uh, all manners of, of evil. We, we pray that we would be sources of, of joy and peace. Even this, this next week, as you bring us into sovereignly orchestrated conversations, that people would, would hear in our voice and in our tone a, a love for the lost and a desire to see all men and women engage in worship of you. We pray this for your glory in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.